Greetings and welcome to another wonderful episode of the NC Raw podcast. Before we get started, want to thank those of you who have found us on Patreon and supported our work. The NC Raw Patreon page can be found at www.patreon.com slash NC Raw. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. And what we hope to do through our Patreon page is to secure enough funding to build our own recording studio. We've been using the uh, conference room at a local hotel, and they have been more than welcoming. However, um, it does require some tear down and set up every week, and it's uh, the wear and tear, the long-term effects on my equipment can be cumbersome, um, and the Wi-Fi just isn't suitable to live stream from. We continue to drop week after week. We are more than grateful for uh, the opportunity, but we just need something with a little bit better streaming capabilities. We also want to build a recovery community center inside of our recording studio, a place where members of our community can gather and share recovery-related skills and hang out and build relationships with each other. Uh, we want to be able to, we want to be more than just a podcast. We want to facilitate growth in our community and also share this wonderful form of communication that is podcasting and live streaming. Share that skill set with other people in our community that are in recovery. So um, if you can find us on Patreon, give us some love. If you find value in this podcast, we um, drop exclusive content on there only for patrons. All of our podcasts are currently and always will be free of charge on all of the streaming platforms, including YouTube. However, uh, we're dropping extra stuff on the Patreon page. We're dropping uh, behind the scenes live stream every Monday night before the podcast starts, as well as a bunch of other stuff. So um, go ahead over there, check it out if you can. Tonight's guest is Ricky and Julie Johnson. Uh, Ricky is a five-year Marine Corps veteran. He's also a person in long-term recovery and a certified peer support specialist. Um, he works with the local veteran community through NC Serves, and he's also a volunteer for the Veterans Treatment Court. Uh, his wife tagged along with him this time, and we kind of got into a little bit of his story, what it's like working with the veteran community, um, you know, transitioning from incarceration and relationships. It was a, it was a wonderful conversation. Ricky is a stand-up guy. He's an inspiration. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed talking to both of them. So give some love to Mr. Ricky Johnson and Julie Johnson.
I'm just an individual, living a miracle, standing divisible, connected to God and my physical essence of my spiritual presence is visible, totally leaving you unaware of my mental subliminal. Used to be a criminal, living so minimal, but things have changed in my life is going through different intervals. Finding that balance is significantly difficult. Timing is everything, so my timing is critical. Rhyming is literal, the unforgettable. It's why I stand before you impeccably so presentable. I give respect to you, know that I am respectable. I've always wanted acceptance. Is that acceptable? I am the rival expected to be exceptional. And I'm a grown man, handle business like a professional. I am incredible, the unconventional. And you stopping me from chasing my dreams is unprofessional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed. We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals. Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, set, go. What is up, y'all? What's up, Steve? Ricky Johnson. <laughs> you brought a guest? Absolutely. My wife. My beautiful wife. My better half. If you're a friend of Ricky Johnson on Facebook, I know you have heard the name Julie Johnson. I want to start the show off. I want to start the show off by telling you what I like about you. Let's hear it. What I love about you. And then I want to hear what Julie loves about you. Okay. Um, what I love about Ricky Johnson is his honesty, his transparency, and in doing like on a daily basis, he is, he's going to let you know how he feels in hopes of inspiring you in hopes of, um, you know, letting you know that it's okay to express yourself in the ways that you feel best. But in doing all of that on a consistent basis, he still has like, an amazing sense of humor. I love Ricky Johnson's sense of humor. I open up my Facebook page and I see his post and I just start cracking up because he he's he's like me, man. He just likes to like throw these little jabs and talk some shit and stir the pot up a little bit. But you know, it's all out of like kindness and oh, yeah. love. You know, he can be so honest, emotional, brutally honest, but still have just an amazing sense of humor. What do you love about Ricky Johnson, Julie? Um, well, all of those things for sure. Um, I kind of, I love that he's humble about things too. Um, he keeps things simple. He doesn't try to complicate. Um, and it's, it's just the realness about him that I think that inspires so many people, his ability to just bring, you know, truth in everything that he does, he doesn't hide things. You know, he is he. You guys, what you guys see is who he is at home. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, I just love that about him. Love that he's real. I do too. I was telling the um, live stream I was doing earlier for our, um, our patrons of our Patreon page. Which first off, I want to give a shout out to the few new patrons that have jumped on this week: um, Holly Hornbuckle, Sherry Barker. Matthew Eason, Tammy Steen, my mama, and Sheldon Steen, my brother, have all jumped on board as NC Raw patrons that are in hopes of allowing us to achieve our long-term goal of building our own recording studio sure. space here in Western North Carolina. 
and using that space as a kind of community center, a place for people in long-term recovery to gather um, and do stuff like this and build connections and build relationships and support each other. So shout out to all you guys for jumping on our jumping on our page. But I was talking um, on the live stream earlier about the importance of like flexibility sure. in recovery and just in life in general, because like you never know what's around the corner, right? Life's going to throw you a curveball at some point. And I'm all about like staying flexible, but my mind isn't right. And like, I'm so, I'm so operationally focused and I have like my whole entire like life, like planned out, like literally on my Google calendar, like minute by minute, you know, like, and if things don't go my way, it's up to me. How do I respond to that? And what I'm getting at is that the way I met Ricky Johnson was he walked into this room one day, except for I hardly knew he was coming. I didn't know the guy that was coming. I don't even they don't know if I was Facebook friends with him. I didn't see any of the videos. I didn't know anything about it. And like the day of the podcast, Brandon had asked us, hey, can Ricky come? Or my, my man Ricky, and he had your bio and stuff. And um, I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like if, if you think that you, he's got something to say and we can do this, absolutely. And like, had I not been so like um, flexible because I plan these guests out, I got guests booked all the way through, booked all the way through April and a long list of people coming afterwards. Um, and had I not been flexible just in that moment, I wouldn't have been able to like create this relationship and like, I value Ricky as like a friend more than just like a guest of the show or somebody that we come on and like chit chat with, you know? Mm. So what's been going on with you, man? I'm staying busy. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I stay busy, but I keep it simple. You know, I, I'm sure you follow on Facebook. Uh, we've been doing a radio. Every day. We've been doing a radio show uh, once a month. Uh, with It's called NC Serves Radio. We just kind of highlight... Uh, a little bit about the veteran community and talk we speak about our providers and for those that didn't catch the first episode that you when you were originally on what is nc serves um nc serves we are a we're, an, we're a non-profit organization uh we any veteran or their family members that needs assistance or help with a resource uh, we coordinate them with where to go uh it's just that support uh that uh that that tribe mentality that we have to try to comfort the veterans that are you know, it might, they may be transitioning uh, from active duty back to the civilian sector, or that they may just they may just be going through a difficult time, and uh, we just kind of wrap our arms around them and you know support them the best we can. You kind of facilitate them yes. in connecting them with existing resources in the community. Facilitate, yes, that's a. And you're the you're like a peer support. I forgot what you called it. I'm before. a I'm a certified peer support specialist with the veteran stamp. Uh, my boss, Brandon, kind of gave me the title peer navigator. Navigator. Um, I'm also uh, I'm a mentor with the Buncombe County Veterans Treatment Court. Uh, that's one of the other. That's probably my doing that's uh, probably my most gratifying role working in the justice, the court system now. It's been a long road to get there. Absolutely. Uh, and how long have you guys been married? Actually, <laughs> actually, today is my wife's birthday. So. Is it really? <laughs> happy birthday. Well, happy birthday, Julie. I would have had a cake, man. That's okay. Dang. We've been, we've been together six years. How long, we been, how long have we been Four. married? Four. Yeah. Four years. Um, and that's, is that his first marriage, kind of? That's my third. Moving right along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is my third. Yeah, we've both been married twice before. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, what's, what's, 
what's life like at home? Like I see you guys like in the gym working out all the time and like really like really spending quality time with surrounding something that you both enjoy and something that supports you both mentally, physically, and like, Mm -hmm. Oh, just your overall well being. Like what's, what's the home life like? How do you control this man is what I'm getting at. How do you keep him? (laughs) (laughs) It's really not difficult. We, we enjoy the same things. Um, we both like to keep things simple. So we don't really, um, I don't know. It's not, it's not challenging. You know, we, uh, we like to have fun. So we're constantly like cutting, cutting up and we play with our little dog and I don't know, we just relax, try to rejuvenate for the week. And then the gym is part of that. We don't argue. I mean, we have, I've learned to communicate through her. We don't argue. We don't really, we have, we may have a tense moment here and there. Um, I've, 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 I've learned to become a man through her, how to just, uh, you know, work through situations that I used to would have ran from or, um, just say I'm to hell with it. I'm not going to talk about it. So communication, we have a healthy relationship and the main, you know, we believe in God, but communication is a big thing for us. The few things that you hit on last time when you, you were like tooting her horn the whole time you're here, she got a lot of credit that (laughs) night. Um, the two things that you hit on that night real, real strongly were communication and boundaries were the two things that you, that you talked about that you learned through her, through her in this relationship. Yes. What was that process like? It was difficult. Um, you know, I was, I was talking to uh, one of the guys I mentor today about in my when I, I when I began this transition, um, having somebody to set boundaries boundaries with me, um, you know, teach me how to communicate. Uh, part of those boundaries was uh, it was hum- it was a it was it was it was uh, humbling, but it was brutal. You know, having to you know having somebody to tell me, hey, some of your behaviors aren't acceptable. Um, this is the way you appear to other people, and it hurt, but it, it taught me how to grow. It, it helped me to become a better person. It gave me, it gave me the, give me the avenues to work on myself, yeah. but it was a humbling experience for sure. You talked about, um, you talked about, I've seen this redemption of Ricky Johnson, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I talked about the, in the beginning about, these videos, these just completely vulnerable, like brutally honest, yet like taking ownership of this experience and kind of like I talked about with flexibility, but just like the way that you view these experiences and share that with the world, but the way you view these experiences is always from a point of view of like, what can I learn from this? Sure. What are my takeaways? How can I, I apply those takeaways to be a better man and to in the next steps of my life or the next experience, what, how can I apply what I've learned and move forward with that? How did you get to that point where you like decided to, to start doing these videos? Um, man, honestly, cause like before the old Steve Steen, the old Ricky Johnson, like to get on, on camera in front of the world and like share your, talk about your emotions and like how you're, how you're feeling with, not just like somebody privately, but the entire world. That's sure. that's a step of vulnerability. That's a leap of vulnerability. The first the first video I ever did, um, my, a lady from my hometown contacted me and she asked me what I um, kind of give her her grandson grandson some encouragement who was struggling. So I sat in front of an iPad and looked crazy, and I was just it was horrible, you know. But it, I, it came from my heart, and um, I decided to do another one and just speaking about uh, my son's suicide and. 
when I made this video, I was seeing the impact it had on people and, and, you know, having that, it gave me that sense of worth and value. People telling me, I keep doing this. And, um, honestly being so transparent and, and, um, being so open about it with everybody, it gives me, it gives me strength and momentum and leverage. It gives me, it liberates me. It, it lets, it, I basically do it to let people know there's nothing you can say about me that I've not said about myself. And I also do it to let people know, um, no matter what you're going through, you're not the first, you're not the last. And, uh, but you can be one of the few to come out of it. You know, I want them to know I don't do this because I'm proud of it or ashamed, but I want to let them know that they're not the only one. And I don't, I don't expect people to be, you know, tell the public about it, but I do that to lead, let, let them see hey, it's okay. You know, that you've gone through this. You can go on any social media app and, um, pull up like inspirational videos or words of wisdom and like, you never know what you're going to get, mm-hmm. right? You're going to get, um, you're going to get somebody trying to sell you something or you're get going to get somebody that, you know, has their, has their head up their ass and their ego patting themselves on the back or their ego in the way. Um, when you go to Ricky Johnson's videos, you get, a, you mentioned, um, Julie at the beginning, you're going to get a sense of humility and it's not like, look at me, look where I'm at, but it's like, this is what I've learned today. Sure. Let me share a little bit of that with you. This is how I learned it. Um, it's definitely not out of, it's definitely not out of greed or any sort of like self, um, look at me kind of deal. It's totally, uh, totally from a humility point of view. You know, I've, I've, I know I've, I could get on social media and Facebook and I could say a lot of things that sound good and tell people what they want to hear and get millions of views. I know that that's not who I am. I mean, I'm, I say things that somebody may not want to hear, but we are like, I even need to hear it at times. That's how these, that's how we grow. That's how, sure. that's how as a human race in a society, we like learn from each other and we evolve is through those like uncomfortable conversations. And like, that's not, it's not natural. Like we don't naturally want to have those conversations. Yeah, babe. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's sometimes I have to tell her, I'm like, you know, she'll, she'll uh, communicate with me. I'll call it. And, and uh, I have to, (laughs) I have to, (laughs) I have to tell her like, you know, after I take a step back and I process what she's she's uh, said to me, she's right. But I have to tell her, look, none of us like to be told, hey, this is, you're wrong or this is not acceptable. It, it hurts at first, and then you take a step back, and then well, I'm like, you know what? I can I see your point. So yeah, <laughs> it's definitely a skill that has to be like cultivated. And, oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you have to uh, high level of self awareness as you're mm-hmm. kind of like in the in the moment and going through the going through the moment um and but yet you do it like very well ricky you do it took uh, and i you know it's something i tell people now if if she would have told if she would have told me in the beginning the person that i used to be she can tell you who i was i was a very uh raw we're we're gonna get there don't worry if she if she would have told me and if she would have told me in the beginning it's going to take this much work for you to get from here to here i couldn't have done it it was a slow grooming uh, planting seed, planting seeds. That's what it was. It's just, uh, she just would, you know, let me vent, you know, validate what I was going through and, um, let me work through it. I mean, 
even with my videos in the beginning, I used to, I would make I'd, I'd speak on emotion a lot and uh, feeding into stuff. And, she, and I say, babe, I made a, I made this video, and she's like, do you really want you do you really see how somebody could take you the wrong way? And I'm like, and I get offended at first, and I'm like, yeah, I can see that. She's so, your best critic, absolutely. Sometimes, yeah. Who's the Ricky Johnson that you met originally, and what what type of growth have you seen in him? Um, well, um, I mean, it started out with just having a really low sense of self-value, you know. Um, when I met him, he was kind of coming out of that a little bit. He was really striving to do something different, you know, and you could tell that. Like, he really wanted to have a, a sincere change. But prior to that, just, you know, um, seeing kind of that person beforehand, it was that person that sometimes we are an addiction, you know, whenever we're struggling to really see the value in ourselves. So what's the point of trying? So, you know, anything and everything is kind of open. Um, and it only makes us feel worse about ourselves that so we're in that terrible cycle where we just keep reliving everything every day and wondering why it doesn't change, you know. And um, I did see that in him for sure. You know, but seeing that 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 he was in that place of wanting so badly to get out of it and starting to be able to, you know, he's reading scriptures at that time because um, he was in the mission that was faith-based. And so they were, even though that wasn't, they didn't really give him everything that he needed as far as his spirituality at the time. He kind of challenged, was challenged by some of the things they brought forth to him. He still would take it in, digest it. What can I learn from this? Just like you said. And so it was really about the growth of the situation, the growth of the experience. And that's what's brought him out of it. What, how did you, how did you develop that skill to, to look at every experience from a point of view of what can I learn from this? Um, like what, what, what changed, what kind of shift in mindset or what led up to that, that point? I was, uh, that's, it's hard. I, I think it was just, I'd hit the bottom. I mean, I hit bottom multiple times, but this last time I was tired and I was willing to do anything possible to come up, to be done with it and, and just make it, you know. Um, do something different, What's and um, I can't give you an exact um, exact moment, but it was just I was willing to do anything. I I was I was I was absorbing everything that I could get just to you know to grow as a person. Talk about that defining moment. Um, the defining moment was I was living in it was kind of like a halfway house. It was jail, but you could go to work, and it was called the Community Supervision Center. And um, I couldn't stay sober in this facility. And uh, I had I, the day that I was to go full time at this job, a factory I was working at, I had like a month to prepare for my the, the urinalysis. I pissed dirty on the day I was to go full time. Okay, and I'm walking out in tears. I'm like, I, I was like, I'm sick of this shit, man. I was done with it, and I was just, I was hurt. I was uh, just ton of emotion. So I go back to the facility and I talk to my probation officer and I ask her. I said, um do you truly care about me and my sobriety? And she said, yes. And I said, well, you got to get me the hell out of here. So I said, that's when I ended up in this rescue mission. And it was just a small step up, you know, from jail. It was, you know, I got better food, uh, being, I had a little bit more flexibility and, uh, you know, better place to sleep. And it was just small steps that, um, kind of got the ball rolling, you know, and I, I had no clue of, I knew what I wanted, but I had no clue of how to get there. I mean, I, I was, my, my way of thinking was backwards. It was, me against the system, and um, you know, I, I, I can say a hundred percent with with confidence. If I went across paths with her, I'd st I'd still be in it. You know, she just gave me that little bit of 
that hope that uh, there's a you know I can I, I can do this. So what did you see in him? Oh, I can definitely see that he wasn't the person that he truly was. Like the, I could see the gentle person that cared about people, the humble person, um, the person that could be so sincerely valued if he would just allow people to do that for him, you know. And he just needed to to begin to get the the foundation, you know, so that he could use that as a springboard to really take off into who he need he wanted to be, who he really is. And, I, and Stephen, I can tell you something else about. I talked to Julie about this. Um, my prior life, I was um, I was very manipulating, and um, that was my that's the way I survived. So I learned how to read people very well. Okay, in a bad way. Yeah. Which that's a that's a sign of many people who have experienced substance use disorders. Right. They, and having that skill in my life now. It's taught me to be. It's 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 um, taught me how to be very observant. It's been it's been a great tool to me as far as when I speak to people or <clears throat> or speak with peers. My greatest asset is listening, and um, I I may I may forget your face or I may forget your name, but I remember everything you told me because I pay I, that's I I pay attention for a reason is to let people know I'm that you matter and what you're telling me. You know I care about it. So what um you guys first met you were getting finishing that program i was i was i was homeless in the rescue mission and that's when we crossed paths and what what was your first impression of ricky (laughs) um arrogant probably (laughs) he was he was cocky for sure i mean he had a cockiness about him you know overcompensating um he did there was an overcompensating mask that he was wearing most definitely um you know and he he struggled with you know, wanting to be someone different and true to himself and struggling to, to, to just protect himself, you know, to survive. And so he had developed this persona of surviving and this mask of surviving that wasn't him, but it was definitely a little bit crazy ghetto country kind of thing going ghetto on. Ghetto country. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of like what it was. So, um, yeah, it was just, it was different, you know. Yeah. It definitely wasn't the guy you see sitting in front of you right now, for sure. Yeah. There's no videos of that, huh? That <laughs> yeah, was bad. I, I, even, I look back, we talk about who I was when we met, and the way, the way I talk, I, I mean, I was, I talk, I still stutter, but I talk, I used to talk really fast. Um, I was really just tense, a ball of nerves, just coming out of life of meth. Mm-hmm. In prison, in prison, you know. and you know, just all that comes with it. And I was just a real, uh, like I, I was trauma, like I had a lot of trauma, you know, from that. And mm-hmm. I just, um, I'm a totally different the way I think, the way I speak, um, everything about me is just I'm a different person now. And it took a lot of work, yeah. Know? That's what I'm getting. I was like, how did, you, how did you get to, how did you influence that change? Like, what steps did you take? Because that's a that's drastic measures. Oh, like that's for one. You know, I you know I give her I give her a lot of credit because um, she was that uh, I was willing to do anything I could to be with her, and I, that meant changing my the music I listened to, my environments. She pretty much let me know from the beginning um, what you were doing before that shit's not going to cut it now. You know, I mean, and I I, was, I took that serious. It, it, it was part of that boundaries and communication, and. Um, this guy, that's what got the ball rolling. I mean, just my behaviors that she would let me know that weren't acceptable. You know, like, this is how you appear. And um, I was just humble enough to, you know, receive it and work on it. How much, 
How much time did you have? How much clean time did you have? When we met, probably a few weeks. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had three changes of clothes. I just started gaining some weight back. Um, I had a little bit, of, <laughs> I had a little bit of confidence, just mm -hmm. enough to you know talk to her. And um, I was still very new. I was still very new to sobriety. Yeah, I think because what I was getting at is like you know you, you hear the myths of early recovery and relationships yeah. and yeah. Um, stuff like that and like for just as many of those like critics, there's just as many success stories. You know, and we we talk about we talked about that the other day. I mean, um, I did, it didn't dawn on me how scared she must have been to take a chance on me. You know, like I was this. Horrible in relationships, a ton of baggage, felonies. I'm uh, still owed a lot of money and fines, and um. But like you said, like we said earlier, though, seeing the, looking at it from what, what is it that I can learn from this and take away from this? And she saw the potential. Yeah. And you looking at it, you see the baggage mm -hmm. because of like the state of mind that you're in mm -hmm. and coming out of the fog and growing into the man that you are sure. today looking back it probably seemed like a lot of baggage and if that's what you want to call it, it probably was yeah. <laughs> but that's not what she saw when she no. right not just when she interacts with you mm -hmm. she saw what you wanted sure absolutely that's a good way of putting it right because mm -hmm. you knew what you wanted yes you wanted to be happy you wanted to be uh, a man you wanted to be in long-term recovery and grow spiritually and grow your faith and get a solid relationship. She saw what you wanted. Sure. And we kept it simple. I mean, um, like that, like you're saying, just simple, it's just different, good food. I mean, just, Ooh, baby. just sleeping, yeah. just sleeping in a, sleeping in a, a good, a warm bed, yeah. not having to worry about warrants, the door getting kicked in. It was, it was small things to me that meant everything to me at that time. Mm -hmm. Music, listening to music, um, just things that, I neglected for so long and things I had to worry about. I just didn't have to worry about it anymore. So let's take a step back and let's kind of dive into how you ended up there. Sure. You're, um, you're a veteran. Yes. I'm a five-year Marine veteran. Mm -hmm. Um, like I mentioned before, I'm also, uh, a, a mentor with the Buncombe County Veterans Treatment Court. Um, I didn't, you know, I'm very open about my past and, uh, my childhood. Uh, I had good parents. My mother was a good woman. And my dad, my biological, my stepdad raised me, okay? And uh, uh, my, 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 my mother and my biological father, they made bad, they made bad choices, okay? They, were, they, they both died alcoholics. Um, growing up, I had a good childhood, but the truth is I was exposed to substance use as a kid, you know, alcohol. And um, it appealed to me. And, did did uh, it, like heavily drinking or like over intoxication became um kind of acceptable behavior for you as a young sure person yeah. yes and um, kind of normalized you know the thing my mom didn't really um she didn't encourage it but she didn't discourage it either it was just it was kind of accepted among you know my families both sides of my family um and how old are you i'm 39 and out of the midwest right yes missouri mm -hmm. is that right I just, do you think that 39? Yes. Do you think that um, a part of that is just kind of like, I don't know, generational? Absolutely. Like, because that's somewhat of what I recall as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm 38 years old, mm -hmm. almost 38. And that's mm -hmm. like, it was just like drinking was like normalized. That's what they, that's what we, 
we do on the weekends. We yes. over-intoxicate. We watch the ball games. We go on vacation. We go to these places. And that's what we, that's mm-hmm. like the behavior that's attached to anything that mm-hmm. we do. I mean, I, I can remember my dad, my, my biological dad. And like I said, guys, um, the bad choices I made, it's, it's because I did it. But I can remember him. I can remember my dad taking me to bars at like three and four and five years old, you know, and it was acceptable and it was fun to me. But looking back, it was, it was, it was very dysfunctional, you know, because it, it, it impacted me. What mm-hmm. I, what the things that I was seeing and hearing, I never forgot it. And, um, uh, like I said, it, it didn't seem like a big deal to me. And obviously it took a huge toll on my life down the road. So at what point in your life did you experience consequences? Um, were you like casually and socially using prior to joining the Marines or I, you know, I, I drank casually before the Marine Corps. I done meth like once before the Marine Corps. Uh, my, my, my heavy substance use didn't get, it didn't get heavy until after the Marine Corps. I mean, I drank, I drank heavily from the time I was 21 until I discharged from the Marine Corps. But, um, my first taste of actual consequence was in the Marine Corps. I got a DWI. And uh, I was 21 then, so that was my first DWI. And you got out out of the Marine Corps after doing five years? Yes, four years and eight months. And started using meth? Yes. What led up to that? Why? Um, you know, I've, I've talked to her about this. I don't know. I was just, um, I was curious. It was around me. I didn't have the, I was just curious. I wanted to, wanted to experiment with it. And it was, a, like I said, I'm, if you know anything about Marines, we're very repetitive, uh, obsessive, comp- or competitive people. And for me, add substance use into that mix. It was a perfect storm. Watch out! And yeah. uh, I already had that. You know, I had an obsessive personality, and that made that 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 personality. It helped drive me to do some great things. But then you throw substance use in, into that with me. It was it wasn't good. And um, the first time I done meth, I loved it. What kind of lifestyle were you living at that time? Were you like? into fitness and things that you're into now or you know i got out of the marine corps in decent shape and i swore i'd never stop working out and then i got into meth you know and it kind of took it to a yeah it, it, it doesn't work like that but it was a, it was a very toxic lifestyle so what sure. it, what led up to that defining moment that we talked about a little bit earlier as far as what it's like what what happened how did you get to that point where you're ready to change Oh, um, I, like I tell a lot of people, something swift come through my life. It wasn't, I wasn't laying in bed one day and I woke up and thought, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. It was just something that kind of forced my hand. Like I'm, I need to do something different. Yeah. You know, every, I, every, I lost everything. Literally, I lost every, I lost everything multiple times. And this last time I was just like, you know, I, I'm, I'm sick of this. And that's, I think that's what I was trying to ask is like, why, why that time? What was different that time? out of anything else that led up to, led up to that point her her yeah <laughs> i think that it you know from my perspective what i saw in him cuz i think it's important for us to give credit a lot of credit to our faith and our mm-hmm. beliefs because one of the things for me that helped me not give in to the fear that might have been there just from the knowledge of him being early in recovery and potentials for disaster and all those things that you read about and you hear um, for me, it was that belief in, belief in my faith. You know, I had prayed and prayed for someone to come into my life with likenesses of my own. Um, you know, and then when I met him, he he was kind of going through that same thing, where really um, trying to dig into his faith, prayer. He, you know, 
prior life of um, substance use, especially meth. That was my drug of choice at the time too, whenever I was in it. So it was, um, it was just, you know, just seeing all of those things unfold, like God, give me a sign. Next day you come in, there's your sign, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was just like, so, so just obvious that unless you just wanted to completely turn your back and say, I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to let fear give in. It was just, you knew it was right. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no doubt. And so I think that's, that's the biggest thing, but like just from an outside looking in peace is coming into place, knowing what I know about recovery, mm -hmm. the connection that we had, I think was a big thing because connection's huge in recovery and helping you pull out of it. But then also the spiritual part of it, like all of those different pieces of recovery that we talk about, were really coming to place for him at the right time. And, you know, I, I said a prayer, you know, when I was, when I got fired from that job, I you now prayed, I said, God, if you, um, if you give me all this pits of hell that I'm living in, I'll always give back to the next man. Um, I never blame you when things don't go my way and I'll always give you credit when I'm blessed. And I, I stood on that prayer, you know, and I was obviously, you know, my story, I was tested in a major way, but, um, that's how that was, I, I pretty much just asked God, you know, guide me. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I really didn't. And, um, I, my best way of thinking, uh, was proven to fail repeatedly. So I needed that. I needed some guidance from somewhere. So then you listen at yeah, this time I did for sure. What other social supports did you have in place <sighs> or did you, how did you? F well, honestly, um, at this time of my life, I'd burned a lot of bridges and, um, I used to kind of say people turn their back to me and all that, but truth was they got sick of my shit, man. And, um, and I look at, it took me a while to, to accept that. And, but this, as far as support, you know, her, it took, you know, my, my dad and I, my stepdad, it raised me. We're really close now, but it took a long time for us to, to uh, get to that point. And, um, my support was, it was, it was few and far between, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it took a, uh, my circle was small. My circle was still small, but it took a while to, uh, you know, support was limited, honestly. Yeah. Um, mending relationships. Yeah. That's a big one. Making amends. Mm -hmm. How did you, how, what was that process like? How did you sure get to that point where, well, um, I had a guy tell me at the VA one time that I really respected. He's an older gentleman. He said, Ricky, the uh, best way to get, uh, to change people's minds of you is your current behavior, you know, and I, I never forgot that. And it, it was a, you know, there's some people, I have family that still don't speak to me mm -hmm. and, uh, other people stopped talking to me when I, when I've started gaining some success, there was people that stopped talking to me. Um, mending relationships. I done apologize. Um, apologies didn't have any value to me anymore. I, I did it so many times. Mm -hmm. It was a long process. It was just a lot of, uh, you know, social media helped me a lot because they, they could actually see my words were matching what I was doing, you yeah. know, through pictures and things like that. My actions. I think one of the things that I've learned that's just so important is that like, you hit on it is my actions, the Absolutely. way that I'm living today. Yep. However, it's still up to the individual as to when they are ready sure. to allow me to regain some of that trust or get back mm -hmm. to that point. And that even though like my mind and my ego wants me like, Hey, I've done all this stuff. Look sure. at all the things that I've done. I've done all these things. Yep. Come on, give me a chance. And yep. it can be frustrating, mm -hmm. but it's not up to me. Sure. Right. The only thing that's up to me my actions and my behaviors and the way that I live. And those are going to fall in line with um, 
my goals and my intentions and I'm going to, I'm going to live this way, whether the camera's on me sure. or whether I'm walking through the grocery store across the street at Walmart, I'm going to be that person that I say that I am. And, um, and it, but it's up to the other person. Absolutely. And I tell people, you know, a lot of guys I talk to are individuals. I'm like, Hey man, um, there's some people that's not going to forgive you and they have that right. And I have, I've had to accept that about, you know, there's people that hasn't, they're, they've not forgiven me, but I, it was my fault. I had it, I had it coming and I'm it's sad, but I mean, I've accepted that this may be the way it's going to be mm-hmm. forever. You know, you talk a lot in your videos in private conversations with me, um, about taking responsibility for your actions. Sure. And that's something that many folks in, recovery really struggle with really like that 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 deep long honest look in the mirror um and taking a look at like not just my actions but how my actions affected other people and what type of harm did i truly cause and what were my underlying intentions behind why i did whatever it is that i did yeah um you've you you do that you own it yeah um how did you learn that like how just so many things that like you, um, you just, you know, even, in, even in my prior life, I wasn't too big on, ex- I mean, I didn't make excuses and I, I didn't, I wouldn't, if I did something, I owned it. Okay. Um, I was never one to say, well, I did this because so-and-so did this. And that's something I kind of, um, it kind of carried over. Um, babe, you can give a better explanation than me as far as, uh, me taking ownership of it. I think the biggest piece of it was probably feeling like you could do that and it was safe to do that. Yeah. Like it was safe to feel, you know, and then um, experiencing that over and over and over again so that it becomes like safe to just have emotion. Mm It's like when we're in our addiction, active addiction, what do we do? We like, we avoid. Screw having emotion, man. I'm I'm gone, you know. So anything and everything to numb. And once he started saying, you know, I can feel, I can feel sad. I can feel, you know, I can feel happy. I can feel true joy, but I have to feel all of those things in order to feel mm-hmm. true joy. Then that's, and I think it's, it was healing. Stephen, something, the question you asked me, a lot of it was, um, I would look at people that were making a lot of excuses, uh, pointing fingers at other people and they would continue to play a victim. I knew how, I knew how I viewed them. And I didn't want to be viewed the same way, gotcha. you know, and I would yeah. just, I would, and it, like I said, owning things I've done, it liberates me. I can just breathe and there's nothing you can look at me and say, well, you did this and you didn't, yeah, I, I probably did do it. I mean, <laughs> so. really empowering. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, you talked about like just that fear of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned that skill through meditation Mm -hmm. and you know it started out with like mindfulness meditation just focusing on your breath right Mm -hmm. just in and out in and out in and out right wander off come back in and out in and out wander off and then you know they take it to the next step of like body Mm -hmm. uh, mind and body breath and body and it's like i can vividly remember like the meditation instructions in treatment Mm -hmm. um and in some of the some of the videos and stuff that I would do. And I was like, notice the sensations in your body. Notice, mm-hmm. notice what it feels like. And I couldn't feel nothing. I, w- I was like, it was all foreign to me. And I, I just could not like pinpoint. Um, a lot of it was like, um, 
it was the feeling tone of the experience. So it would be like, um, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Do you feel a, do you feel a sensation in your body and then label it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And like Mm -hmm. everything was neutral because I couldn't identify what it felt like. It was, it was, and it was years, two Mm -hmm. years before I could really like notice things. Mm -hmm. And now that I've practiced this for so long, um, I don't have to be in meditation Mm -hmm. to experience something in my body, to experience a shift or a subtle change Mm -hmm. in the way that I experience these emotions kind of like physically. And, Mm -hmm. um, but it took like a lot of work and I I just remember like, I don't know, I don't know what it feels like. Feel what? (laughs) You know, I still, I give speak, I do presentations and I still speak and I give, um, every time I do these presentations or speak, I relive my, I, I tell my story and I relive a lot of traumatic stuff and there's still times, man, I got to stop in mid sense and just, I, I may start crying and, and, you know, in this, in front of people or have to, I have to recompose to catch my breath, man, because it's, it just hits, it just hits me all of a sudden and, um, you know, I, I still get emotional. But that's know? the difference today is that like, sure. you're okay with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Like mm-hmm. we're okay with having this difficult conversation with strangers. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Um, and like Julie said, like in the past, we would have run from it, sure, hid from it, like mm-hmm. I, at all costs. Yeah, survive, uh, survival. <laughs> yeah, survival mode. And I don't. I mean, that's just it's such an amazing um, way to live, yeah. right? It's so liberating mm-hmm. um, to be able to do that and share that experience with others. And you can see, like, when when they receive it, right? Like you, like you talked about, like being aware of when you're talking to individuals and kind of being able to read them and like to see like the, the wheels turning mm-hmm. and to see like the impact that, um, that you've made when you do do those pitches and those presentations. Um, how has, how has your arrest record sure. affected the way that you live today? Oh, it's, a, it's affected it <laughs> tremendously. Um, you know, I'm a two. I'm a. I have two felony convictions. Uh, one for DWIs, one for methamphetamine. Um, and I'm. I try to tell people. You know, when you get that drug felony on your record, you know, <laughs> the games are over. Um, it's uh, it's affected the uh, renting places. Um, it's affected you know getting jobs. Um, I'm blessed with the job that I have now, and it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't. Um, you know, it took a lot of work. It was networking. It was, um, I was determined when I, when I caught these two drug charge, this felony, I'm sorry, the, the meth charge and the DWI felony, I was determined not to let those, uh, define me or dictate my life. And, um, it, it was something it's, my, this is my goal. If you see me on paper, I don't match who you meet. And that's, that's been, that's been my goal every, every, everything I do. And it doesn't always work out that way. I mean, I've applied for jobs before I met Brandon at the outlet mall at Under Armour and at Nike, no calls back. And nowadays with the tech world, you can't even get that face-to-face chance to sell yourself. Mm-hmm. No. Um, and I think that's what's so huge with some of the advocacy stuff that's taking place these days is like, like the ban the box mm-hmm. things like that, that'll just get you in the door just to have yeah. that conversation. Um, but at the same time, like there's still barriers in place sure. from on like the corporate level, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, I've told this story before that I worked this little retail job mm-hmm. and like I part-time supervisor at this little department store downtown. And 
Um, my boss is a huge recovery ally. She supports the work that we do here and she like gives me off any day I need mm -hmm. to have for special events and things like that. Anytime I need a day off related to my recovery, she, it's like priority. She makes it happen. She's recovery ally. She supports not just mm -hmm. myself, but the things that are happening in our community and get friends from school and early recovery looking for a part-time job. She's like, yes, absolutely. I'll be happy to give this man an interview, mm -hmm. sit down, interview him. She loves him, right? Like he just, he's, he's not the person he is on paper. Sure. Go through the hiring process, submit the background check. Corporate says, no, we ask for special consideration. They say, no, what do you do? You know, corporate's based out of Houston, Texas. Right. They could care less about a little dude over here in Western North Carolina. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know what, what's the next step? Like, how do you, how do you advocate at a higher level to even just, you know, this is, the, this is a day, not the day. Well, yeah, it's the danger of trying to find employment, you know, as a felon, um, it's absolutely who you know. Um, you know, obviously, if you stay in that, I mean, I have friends that are felons, mm -hmm. but if all if the only people you know that are felons, you kind of get stuck in that way of thinking in that um, that circle. Um, when you're a felon, the majority of the jobs that you're going to get, especially as a drug felon, I shouldn't say majority, but from my experience, you're going to be working in other facilities with other drug felons that had the same prior issues as yourself. Uh, you're putting yourself at risk to be exposed to that behavior again, and it's just a, it's a difficult. I you know I had it happen to me. You know, being, I was right back into the mix of where I didn't need to be at, but it was because I couldn't find a job due to my felony, and mm -hmm. it, you know, and my work record sucked too. So yeah. And talking to Philip Cooper on here, oh, yes, um, they do. You know, Asheville has some fair resources through the Justice Resource Center, and they they do have. Um, relationships with certain employers mm -hmm. um, that's a lot of what mr cooper does is um, kind of facilitates that handoff mm -hmm. um, if you're uh, truly willing to if you're truly on the right track of changing your life and you're committed to doing that he, he goes to bat for you he's mm -hmm. kind of like an advocate sure um, but in talking to him on this podcast we were talking about like that process and he was like the first thing that I ask these individuals when they come to me is, who's your sponsor? What kind of stuff work are you doing? What's your, what, is your, what does your recovery look like? Mm -hmm. And I get into that first. And if I think that they're a good candidate, then I'll go to the table for them. But there's not a Philip Cooper in every city in this country sure. that's you know, right. doing that work and willing to do that. And I think it's just, I think it's so valuable because... Um, you never know what Ricky Johnson you're gonna what Rick, who's the oh, next Ricky Johnson. Mm -hmm, you sure. never know who you're gonna run into. Um, and dude, I'm all about second, third, fourth, fifth chances because that's that's what got me here. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was way more than a second chance mm -hmm. that got me to this table, just like you. Um, veteran community, sure, out in Asheville. What is it like working coming coming from where you came from and going through what you went through? Um, and then now being able to go into the courtroom and advocate for these guys and have those personal relationships and be a, be a, a, a role model to so many of those guys that come through there. What's it like? Um, gratifying, humbling. Um, 
you know, I, in my prior life, I never thought I'd be involved in the recovery community, much less back in the veteran community, you know, and here I am, you know, in the mix of it. Both, well, a leader in both communities. You know, I never thought, you know, it's every, every time I go in the courtroom, it's, uh, for one, it, it humbles me. It lets me know how quick my life can change from one bad choice. I can be brought back in there on the opposite, opposite side again. You know, I'm working uh, with the judge. You know, I work in the judge's the vicinity. You know, it's um, working with law enforcement. Never thought I'd be doing that. And uh, it's great. I love it, you know. What about the relationships with the, the gentleman coming through treatment court? Um, we have a good relationship. I think the benefit that I have as a mentor is um, – I can, uh, I'm able to relate, relate to them on a level where a lot of people can't just with the military experience and being in the justice system, they know they can't BS me, you know, and that keeps us, we keep it, uh, very open and honest with one another. So yeah. how do you like, how do you establish trust with them? And then how do you like hold them accountable? Very when... simple. I, I spoke <laughs> about this today, a very simple way. Main thing is listen. Okay. Mm -hmm. Listen, encourage, have compassion talk about accountability and consequence. And, and you know, when I, um, my talking about or consequence and accountability is not just some hearsay bullshit. I'm, it's actually here, this is what I, this, I was there, you know, I've been to prison, you, you haven't yet. You don't wanna get, it's not, you know, you've got a chance in this, you have a chance in veterans court. Mm -hmm. um, how do you do it from a place of love though? How do you, how do you like, sure. cause that's, I think that's what leads to trust, sure. is to know that you're, it's, you're, you're coming at it from a, non-authoritative, mm -hmm. non-judgmental, like, hey, sure. you know, I'm, however it is you need to approach it, but I'm doing it because I care sure. about you, because I see you as an individual the same way that Julie saw you, you see those cats. Absolutely, same way she did for me. Um, I listen, um, whatever they're going through, first and foremost, I listen to them because I want them to know um, that they matter and I care about what they're going through. I let them talk and Whatever they're going through, I validate it. Hey, brother. Hey, Stephen. Um, you have a reason to feel that way, um, and we're going to get through this. I want them to know that uh, they're not the first person to go through it. They're not going to be the last, and but they could be one of the few to come out of it and be a better person for it. You know, I may I may say I may sound a little gruff in a video, but never would I just. I'm not somebody that's going to chew somebody's ass. I mean, I'm I'm just real, and you know, I'm I have compassion and. And I think he has them. empathy. Empathy. Too. Yeah, that's a good word. Empathy from experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I and I don't make it about me. I'm not the kind of person that tries to give advice. I don't well, you went you went through that. Well, guess this is what I went through. If I can do it, you can do it. I'm not that guy. You know, I'm like, hey, we're 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 a team. We're a Let's team do together. this together. Yeah. Um what's been the most difficult part of this whole entire process of recovery? What's been your most challenging moment? Uh, losing my son by far yeah what happened um you know through my through my addiction i that was my priority my priority was substance use i put everything in front of him i put i put people in front of him that so, I was, so like just like you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that you experienced and kind of witnessed a lot of it he did as well yes through me through you yeah and i swore and i swore to myself i would never you know like i said my my biological dad wasn't a bad man but I swore I would never, you know, put substance use in front of my kid like, you know, I, I had it done to me from my, my biological dad. And I felt I did the same thing. And um, I would have, 
I I had my son on drug deals with me. I got high in front of my son. I let him smoke weed in front of me. Um, I had him watch the door for for me while I would sell dope. Um, Just a a bunch of very backwards ways of thinking. I was just, I was, I was justifying in my mind. I was teaching him how to do the wrong thing the right way. I put substance use over him for many years. Um, I stole from him to get high. Um, Always telling him I'm gonna get it together. Um, I'm sorry and uh, things like that and uh, you know it, I paid for it you know I, I don't I, I I carry a lot of I carry a lot of guilt for that you know it's easy, it'd be easy for me to say you know he made his own choice but I'm his dad man he I impacted his life in a negative way he so, looked up he looked up to you absolutely and the behaviors that you were doing weren't in line with the way that you wished he would have lived he he knew i was he was old enough to know that i was he still loved me he still looked up to me no matter what i did but obviously i was living a very you know uh, chaotic toxic life and you know he's he, he saw three good years of me after i met julie but um you know when he passed he took his own life he was 18 it uh it knocked the piss out of me you know mm-hmm. it um yeah. Did you guys have a good relationship in those three years? Or did you we spend did. Some- it was a lot better. We um, we started. He start. I started gaining his trust back, but it was unfortunate that I started watching him struggle, and there wasn't a lot I could do about it. With know? drugs or mental health mental, he- mental health. He was. You know, him and his girlfriend had. They broke up. Mm-hmm. Um, he started having mental health issues. Um, I was just coming out of my, you know, my my transition or get going transitioning to who I am now. My way of thinking was, you know, he started talking about taking his own life. And I th- I told him, I said, um, if you think that'll help something, then do it. F and do it, you know. That was the way I was, that's my way of thinking. It didn't happen to three years later, but it's a thought of, I can't believe I said that, you know. Mm-hmm. I still carry that with me. When you got the news, that was the first thing that you probably went back to was sure. that you said that. Yeah, I, I, I think about it often, you know. Mm-hmm. And like I said, his life, it killed me, but it inspired me. It, um, it. I decided, right, you know, like that, like I mentioned, the prayer that I, I prayed. I'm like, I never doubt you when things don't go my way. I didn't, I didn't ask God why me. I'm not a pity guy. My son made a, he made a bad choice, but um, it's, it, it inspired who I am now. It humbled, it definitely humbled me. Yeah, you know. I'm sorry, man. That's it's okay. Difficult situation, and yeah. um, I commend you for coping with it in the most healthiest ways, and like being where you are today after experiencing such a loss in recovery and somewhat still early recovery. It's, and you know, even with Julie, she's, um, she's a therapist and she can tell you for her, you know, it, she still go explain to, explain to him how, how it impacted you, babe, with the, you know, landing situation. Well, it was just, it was difficult, you know, because I had to, I felt like I had to, um, to maintain my composure in order to be there for him because he was so early in recovery too. There was a lot of potential for it to go disastrously bad, right? So I knew that I needed to to be able to maintain myself and which took a lot of self-care. Um, but then also, you know, it was challenging because once we moved to Lake Ozark, Missouri, away from where our hometown, um, I was working with teen boys that had experienced developmental trauma and trauma 
you know, in their past and um, saw a lot of Landon in them at times, you know, which was really challenging for me. So I would have to a lot of times just go to my office and just emotionally just break down and just let it be what it was and be in the emotion for a minute, get myself back together and go back out and start, you know, providing the therapy to the boys again. But it was challenging. It was really challenging. I, th I think the best way she worded it to me was I was, you know, I always thought about all the, um, you know, he left me a letter, told me he was proud of me. And I was always, I always thought of the, the, the bad things that I did. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a mean person. I just did, you know, really selfish stuff. Mm -hmm. And she told me one day, she said, babe, you, you could have been, you know, you, you're blaming yourself because of all the bad things you've done, but you could have been the perfect parent. Then you would ask, what did I do wrong? You know, mm -hmm. again, so, it's about how you look at the sure. situation and, um, absolutely like living the way that you did did it influence the way that he thought probably sure but did the seeing the transformation of ricky also influence the way that he thought and saw the world absolutely dude sure. mm -hmm. um just i'm sure it's just one of those things that there's we talk about in recovery but like those those questionable questions in life that we'll never have the answers to. Sure. How do we find peace in that? And how do we find acceptance and even just like tolerance mm -hmm. in those painful, unanswerable moments? And you know, even as bad as it hurts me still, and I hate to use it in this way, but it's been um it's been an ace in the hole for me as far as being able to talk to people about like, hey, this is what I did and this is what I'm paying for. Or, you know, or somebody's even thinking about taking their own life. I'm able to get on that level with them, you know, and, um, uh, it's not worth it, you know? Yeah. But that's also a part of kind of taking the responsibility yes. for your actions. I mean, if you're going to take responsibility for your actions, that's you know, the biggest one, whether you're doing it from a place of compassion or from a place of guilt and shame. And it sounds like you're, you've done it, come at it from a place of compassion yes. and forgiveness. And you know, the main thing, a lot of it I use is with, um, <clears throat> individuals that still in, uh, substance use and addiction. I'm like, Hey man, you know, God forbid you ever have to look at your kid in the casket like I did. And you think about all that time you invested into these people that don't give a shit about you. And this life is just a, it's a, this whole life is an illusion, but the consequence is absolutely real. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to carry this. And I, I, do, I use that. That's what I, and it's because it's reality. And that's something I speak about all, a lot also. Mm -hmm. How do you forgive yourself? Oh man, I can't always. There's days I still, I, I'm mad at myself. I hurt. Um, but that's you being vulnerable again right now. Sure. Right. And that's this this practice of forgiveness is oh so temporary just mm -hmm. like every other feeling and mm -hmm. emotion and we'll have good days and bad days and there's days where um you know i don't have a resentment in the world and there's days where i hate myself sure. and it's all mm -hmm. about like how do how do i shift that relationship with myself so that when i do have these self-doubting guiltful shame-filled moments I can recognize it and then respond to those in the healthiest way. But again, that's a skill and a practice and something that, um, that you have to figure out for yourself. Sure. Like, how do I do that? And what, you know, and when I talk about with his, 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 uh, decision to take his own life, 
you know, there, there's people that tell me, Ricky, it's not your fault. And, you know, I, I know they mean well, but I try to explain to people, man, what you're exposed to, what you see and what you hear, it absolutely impacts who you become. You know, it can be bad or good. Uh, so he saw a lot of me in a negative way. I mean, I can't help but. And, I, you know, I, I may go a month or two and, and be at peace with his decision and think, you know what, at least he's not, having, he, he's not here in this world dealing with all this crazy crap going on. But then I might be riding down the road one day and listen to a song and just it just devastates me. So, but then you go on Facebook and you tell everybody, yeah. mm-hmm. "I've seen it." Yeah. Um, you know, a part of it is just like, you know, so much of my life as a young man, teenager, and young adult, um, I did not. No matter what my parents, I had a close relationship with my parents and. Um, no matter what they like tried to teach me, um, I just did not know. Like the, the most valuable skill that I possess right now that I did not possess back then is how to relate to my emotions. And like I would just get stuck on these like like what you just described could have been any one of us mm-hmm. with your son because like I just did not have healthy relationship with negative emotions or uncomfortable feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what my parents taught me, no matter what my counselor said, like there was just, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know how to, how to teach that. You know, I learned through my spirituality and through my meditation practice that as a 35 year old man, (laughs) you know, not as an 18 or 20 year old kid, um, I would be a different person had I had those skills back then. And so that's one of the things that like I always think about is like, how do we influence that? You know, my girlfriend has a five-year-old son, right? How do I teach him those, those skills now so that when he gets into middle school and he gets into high school, he'll have a set of skills to turn to mm-hmm. when self-hatred and shame and guilt come up because it's going to come up Mm -hmm. whether it's through drugs or relationships or Mm -hmm. whatever those things are going to happen um how do i teach them that and i don't know what the answer is you know i don't it's just unfortunate that most of our skills and our uh, lessons are learned through going through hell (laughs) learn the hard way (laughs) why do we have to learn the hard way (laughs) um Julie, what uh, you you are a counselor, a mm-hmm. therapist. Yeah. What kind of work do you do? Well, right now I um I work at Behavioral Health Group, and I I'm a program director and uh-huh. a therapist there for medication assisted treatment for opiates. Okay. How did you get into the helping field? What was it about? Um, gosh, that's it's interesting because I started out in business, um, and. I actually got a job um, back in our hometown in prevention, drug and alcohol prevention. And because of my past addiction, I thought, well, maybe this is an opportunity for me to give back in some way. Maybe that's why I went through that at such a young age, you know. Um, So I thought, okay, I'll try this. I'll see what it's like. Well, it was challenging because I was going into the schools you know, doing prevention talks and education, kind of like what we had in school whenever we were there. And, you know, when the person comes in and you're kind of sitting there whenever you're the person in addiction and you're going, yeah, mm-hmm, 
I don't believe anything you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that's all not me. Garbage, no you know? way. Yeah. And that's um, like the miracle answer is like, how do we teach it in a way that they can receive the message mm-hmm. and right. understand the consequences? Yeah. At the, yeah. at a young age. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's kind of how I started. And then, then they, they needed a counselor. And so they said, surprise, basically, we're going to send you to these classes and you're going to become a counselor. <laughs> and I was like, what? You can do that? Like, I thought you had to have an education for that. And they're like, well, you're going to get the education in substance abuse. Mm-hmm. So that's where you're going to start out. And once I, I started out in counseling, I really enjoyed it. It was like, I knew that was where I was supposed to be, even though it was challenging at times. So there was times whenever I thought, I cannot do this. You'd have a really challenging patient or whatever, you know. And it was like, I just don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I've got it in me. But it was growth, you know. It was like our challenges we have as individuals. Let me, let me stop her real quick. Julie, she she quit school, high school, mm-hmm. acquired her GED, went back and got two master's degrees while raising two daughters and working full time. So oh, she, yeah. And she's she also she still has an addiction. It's me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I seen her. I seen her stalking you in the gym. Yeah. I seen her stalking you in the I gym. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she uh, she I definitely um, I look up to her for being able to accomplish all of that. Huge, you know, huge, yeah, huge. Yeah. And she would never tell you, but I, that's something I brag about because it's a big deal. So she's very humble. Yeah. It was surviving though. You know, it's like you said, for so long you run from your emotions. And I was raised by a guy that, you know, no vacations. He was a farmer and he just, he worked constantly. It's all he did, you know? So I was raised in that survival mode. This is how you find value in you. And if you don't do this then you're not valuable. And, you know, so it was, it was like, you're going to do this no matter what. So there was definitely a drive there. But at the same time, there was no, like, let's stop and, and feel for a while, you know. It was still, even though I wasn't an addiction at that point, it was an addiction. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was just a different way of distracting my mind from feeling and being in the moment. So it took me a long time to get to that so place. Just, so just imagine this this beautiful woman with two master's degrees but grew up on a farm. She can drive a tractor. She raised cattle and she can castrate pigs. In <laughs> <laughs> a Midwest boy like you, man, yeah. there ain't no turning back from yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, she taught me. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't even know how to drive a tractor. We, we were on her, her dad's farm, and she's on there grinding gears. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, what What brought you guys to Asheville? Yeah, my job with Behavioral Health Group. The opiate epidemic. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, I knew a person that was down here that was already, you know, involved in that field, and they needed help, so that's what brought me down here. And Ricky yeah. came with it. Came with us. I told her. I said, Didn't know what he was going to do. <laughs> I had no clue. I had, like I said, I had that goal, and I had a vision, but no plan, and uh, came with the two felonies, and uh, started networking. How um, how long after you landed here did you land at NC SIRS? Um, it was a little bit, wasn't it? I, I was unemployed for probably three or four months, yeah. and you know that time I used it. I was the time I was unemployed. I I that's when social media I used it to my advantage. That's when I um, you know contacted the uh, the news station where I'm from, and they ran an eight minute story over my life. You know through because of social because of social media. Mm-hmm. So I used it wisely, you know. And, I and was, they ran it back uh, back home. Mm-hmm. What was it? Um, it was just the redemption of Ricky Johnson. Yeah. yeah. 
I wanted you to say it. Yeah. <laughs> what was the piece? What was the piece like? What did they do? They came here and interviewed you? No, nah, we. I went back home yeah. for a weekend, and um, they we went back to the jail that I was one of the jails I was locked up in. Um, one of his friends, hometown people. It was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. And that uh, that story has actually been nominated for a national and state award. So that's been pretty cool. The redemption of Ricky Johnson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you see on the future for you, man? Still, um, I'm, I'm a, I'm in right now. I'm getting my supervision for my CSAC. Kick um, ass. That's, that's coming up. Uh huh. Um, I'm speaking in front of the governor in June of North, of North Carolina, the governor's working group. Uh, still doing the radio once a month. Um, actually, I probably shouldn't say this today, but I'm going to. Um, I, I met some people through uh, NC or NC Works or NC Serves who we work with, and um, they uh. They asked me, or Brandon asked me to tell them my story, and they invited me to Manhattan to speak. Oh hell yeah! To New York, so that's that's probably going to be coming up soon. Same stuff, man. Um, staying busy, staying humble. Um, the, what's the radio deal? Because we kind of skimmed, brushed sure. over that real quick at the beginning. Oh, uh, it's it's a one. And then how can people catch it? It's a one hundred three point seven WPVM and uh Popper or now I'm sorry, Nashville Popper Bus where we moved from. Um, <laughs> Um, it's a once a, uh, I don't have the schedule, but it's once a month. It's um, it, it's NC Serves Western and ABCCM. We just highlight our providers, uh, talk about the veteran community. Uh, this month is a uh, Women's National Women's Appreciation Month, so we're um, highlighting uh, female veterans. Um, every month is just something different. It could be people that uh, that NC Serves has benefited. You know, somebody like me or um, other veterans. Cool. It's just give, it just gives a it gives the community a, an awareness of how to better support mm-hmm. veterans and what's going on. You know, it's definitely a needed service in, sure. in the community. Um, hit your Facebook page. You always post, and NC Serves always posts when you guys are yes. going on the air. Um, Julie, harm reduction. You moved to Asheville. Start doing harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Methadone clinic, yes. needle exchange services, stuff like that. Um, we don't do the needle exchange no. services, but we do link them up with resources so they can do that. Mm-hmm. What is, what's the difference in the recovery scene here in Asheville compared to where you guys come from in Missouri? Um, I would say that there's a lot more heroin here. Mm-hmm. Um, back home, it was it was more meth. Um, there was some heroin, but not. It was more pain pills, you know, which. Here, there seems to be more heroin. There's still the addiction to the pain pills that sometimes leads people into the heroin addiction, but um, definitely back home it was more pain pills, at least at that time. What about, like, recovery? You see? Um, more abstinence-based back yeah. then. You know, back yeah. there where we where we lived. Um, not a lot of education on so the need for it. When you moved here, harm reduction mm-hmm. was somewhat of a new... It was, yeah. Although, you know, back home, whenever I was still working in substance use and, and prevention and, and counseling, um, it was just starting to come to the surface where, hey, maybe we should do some harm reduction. And, you know, there, but it was taboo. It was like, mm, I don't know, though. That's like switching one drug for another. You know, that's not going to fix anything. But people didn't really understand that it could, we could use more of a step down model, you know, to really help people. Yeah, and the research shows the, mm-hmm. the benefit. And I was, I was, I was one of the people that was absolutely against. Yeah. you know, uh, you don't. It's, you're switching one thing to another, but the more I've been um, opened up to it and educated about it, I can, I can see the benefit that it has for some people. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, if somebody um, can go get a dose at a clinic 
and get counseling, that keeps them from going out robbing and stealing. You're alive. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, for sure. Period. You know, we just mm-hmm. talked about the, what it was like to experience the loss of your son. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you're alive. Yep. You know, um, that next breath is an opportunity to find recovery. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's what it boils down to. And um, I and I something I never use the word. I try to avoid using the word never within recovery. But guys, if you're listening, you know, the longer you the longer you stay in it the harder it is to come up out of it, you know, because the older we get, the more set in our ways we get, mm-hmm. the less likely, less likely we are to take guidance. Um, obviously anytime you use it, it's a, you're closer to death or closer to going to prison, you know? Yeah. So I don't, I don't like to use the word never, but the longer we stay in it, it's just, you know, it's harder to come up out of. And like, I mean, we're about the same age. I talked a lot about like, you know, finding recovery in my mid thirties, like mm-hmm. a lot of like, the guilt and shame that it was the hardest for me to right. work with was, is the loss of time, mm-hmm. the decades of my nieces and nephews being born I, and holding them as babies and having it. relationships with them. It's like there's 15 years that Steve wasn't present. You hit it, you hit it on right? the head. Mm-hmm. And so like, what, what, what would have happened if I found recovery at 22? What would I be doing today? You sure. know, like, and that's just things that I think about, mm-hmm. but you also talked about like, finding it later in life it it can be somewhat difficult at times i can vividly remember driving up here after getting fired from my job and driving up driving up my little mountain road just to like to get away because i was so mad for losing my job when it was my fault (laughs) but i was blaming the employer Mm -hmm. and I was blaming all these other people in my life. So I ran away from it Mm -hmm. and I came up to where I'm living now, the little cabin. And I can like vividly remember like having this, you know, literally lost everything, Mm -hmm. job, my home, girlfriend, all I had was my truck left. And I can remember driving up my little mountain road and just like, reflecting on my life and I was intoxicated at the time, but just like reflecting on my life. And like, there wasn't the thought of changing Mm -hmm. did not cross my mind. I was thinking about what I just described about not having relationships with the nieces and nephews and my brother and, um, and not being present in their lives and the people who should who loved me and should be involved in my life and not having that relationship. And the only, the only thing that I felt was acceptance. I accepted that I would be a lifelong alcoholic and a lifelong drug user. And I would, I just could like, I vividly remember, and this was 2012, seven years ago. I mean, I vividly remember just driving in my truck up this little road, just thinking like, okay, well, this is what my life is. I am and always will be a career lifelong user. And like the thought of stopping never even crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I mean, recovery was accessible. Like I could, I had supports in my life, but it just didn't, it sure. wasn't there. And it was an acceptance. It was like, okay, this is who I am. This is where I'm at. This is, this is what my life is. Um, and it, you know, you mentioned, you know, like, and another part of the longer you stay in it, man, that guilt and that shame just piles on. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one reason. I'm, that's another reason I'm open with people is let them know, hey, man, it's okay. To, it's okay that you've done it. Or it's not. It's it happens. 
You know, you don't have to stay in it. There's a way out of there. You know, you don't have to keep doing it because the longer you let that stuff pile on, it just it'll weigh you down, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. some people never come out of it. There's just so much. There's it's there's so much fear of like initiating that change, and yeah. that's why like I think the harm reduction stuff is so valuable because like Julie's clients have a relationship with Julie, so when they have experienced those consequences or they have experienced those thoughts like if I just shared with you in your office what I was thinking and feeling you could have totally rephrased that to like well you know this is what is available you're not a lifelong whatever you're a person and And that's just like planting those seeds Mm -hmm. that you talked about um I don't know man it's just I think about this stuff all the time and it's just like I don't know I don't know what the answers are. No, I, was talking I to, ask these questions on the show and I just don't know. I was talking to a guy, a mentor today, and where I was reflecting on, um, now I'm a clean guy. And um, I was thinking about all the places that I'd, I've laid my head before, you know, just <laughs> the, the smell of piss and just, just filth. And I lay there looking up thinking, how the hell did I end up here? You know, I look back at that and I'm just, that's something I think I still reflect on that I never want to go back to that again. I just, the thought of it repulses me, you know, mm-hmm. and I know how quick it can happen. And how quick you can go back there. Absolutely. How quick you can go back there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you hit it on the head with like just taking responsibility for your actions because it was something that I was just avoided at all costs, you know, like Mm -hmm. there was no. um, I wanted to ask you about something. I saw a post that you made a a week ago, a couple days ago. Okay. Um, National Women's Day post. Yes. Mary Jane. Oh, yeah. Mary Jane, if you're listening, I love you. Who's Mary Jane? What kind of role did she have in your life? Huge role. Uh, Mary Jane's my stepmother. Um, when my my dad, Pop, my stepdad, when he, mar- when he married Mary Jane, I was, uh, I kind of gave her hell. I gave her hell, you know. I just was not, I was in a bad, I'd steal from them. I was um, disrespectful. I'd get high in their house. I was just uh, not a good person. Well, come to the point in my life when uh, my son wanted to come live with me, and if it wasn't for Mary Jane, my son would not have clothes. He wouldn't. He wouldn't have had food. I mean, I just I, I, I failed as a father, but she was always there for him. And um, you know, no matter what I did, she she loved me still, and uh, she forgave me. Now we're really close now. She forgave me, and um, it took a while, you know. But she's always she's one of my biggest fans. I don't like to use the word fan, but she's uh, you got a lot of fans bro i hate to tell you <laughs> yeah. that she's one of my biggest supporters so i appreciate her you know she's a good woman for sure awesome um i don't know if i got anything else man i'm glad you had us today appreciate yeah, it dude i'm glad that you came back um in the short period of time that i've known you i would say that um it's been pretty amazing just to see from like a distance to see this kind of, and I didn't know the old Ricky. I only know this funny and honest. I love his sense of humor, man. He cracks me up, but this funny and honest and vulnerable guy. Let me say this real quick. Yeah. Um, you said you don't know the old Ricky, but <laughs> when I took my wife home to uh, meet my family, they would all come up to her and go, how in the hell did you do this? Like what, what happened? You know? <laughs> they, they all knew the hell on they knew the hell on wheels but it's been amazing just to like just to see you kind of like step into this role and like mm-hmm. you talked about like taking responsibility for your actions and being honest and vulnerable but like you really have 
settled into this role with like a sense of like authenticity um, to where that like you you talk to you privately, publicly, watch a video, private conversation, like there's no questioning the authenticity. And that's what's like mm-hmm. we were talking about um, in early recovery and building that trust and things like that is that it has to come from somebody that is truly in it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And that's what like I always thought that like those individuals who were trying to sell recovery were mm-hmm. just like full of shit, you know, like I just didn't they didn't have anything in common with me, um, whether they were um, in recovery themselves or not. They just didn't have anything in common with me. But when in talking with you and getting to know you, it is from like a genuine, Mm -hmm. a genuine sense of um, kindness. Yeah. And a a totally authentic perspective. So Um, I've had great. I mean, Brandon Wilson's been a huge mentor to me, a huge impact. You know, he's um, I wouldn't no question. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for his uh, guidance. And how come I didn't see you running in that race with him this weekend, man? (laughs) Uh-huh. Brandon can have those races. <laughs> you're, you're you're a weight guy. <laughs> I, run, I used to run a lot, but not anymore. But uh, Brandon's been a Brandon and NC serves and ABCCM is, you know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be here today. And now Brandon's, uh, he's by far the best leader that I've ever had. It's, it's just as far as um, grooming you for greatness. I mean, he's uh, he but he holds me accountable. You know, we have that relationship. We're, he's like a brother to me, but uh, he holds me accountable too. So I appreciate him. Well, you're a badass. <laughs> for real i i feel privileged to uh call your friend and know you and look forward to getting to know you even further same to you brother how can people get a hold of you to get a hold of these videos you should start a youtube channel man you know i i tried that once but um <laughs> people were talking shit to me on there so <laughs> on youtube yeah so well, you're a different person I today know. ricky johnson <laughs> so I have to turn the comments off turn the comments uh, off. you can find me on facebook uh ricky johnson jr uh, it's pretty simple. Um, He's this guy right here, Ricky Johnson Jr. on Facebook. Start a YouTube channel. Download your videos from Facebook, just the Facebook Live videos, and just say, take that same video and throw it on YouTube. Yeah. Do it, bro. I'm telling you. And you know what, man? You need start a podcast. That's what you need to do with this time. Take these videos and just start a podcast. So many people do it. Um, they don't have to do it. Hasn't have to be this format with like guests and people coming in and fancy equipment. Like you could literally do the same thing you do with your Facebook videos mm-hmm. and make them into podcasts. Super easy, dude. People want to hear what you have to say. They do. For real. I appreciate it. Thank y'all for tuning in to NC Raw. Y'all have a wonderful night. We will catch you on Friday night. We got a special episode Friday night with um, Chris Campow. Addiction professionals in North Carolina, um, director of like collegiate recovery. He's in charge of the collegiate recovery, all the collegiate recovery programs across the state. He kind of like provides resources and things like that. So awesome cat. Looking forward to having a conversation with him. Hit up Ricky Johnson on Facebook. You got to check out his videos. Julie, thanks for joining us. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to the podcast and thank you to the Comfort Inn of Silva, North Carolina for providing this wonderful recording space to us every single week. Um, The Comfort Inn is a recovery ally. They support the work that we're doing. They can be found at 1235 East Main Street in Silva, North Carolina. Um, You could check them out, book a room, 
We live in one of the most beautiful parts of the entire country. Uh, spring is on the horizon, so I highly suggest if you're visiting the Western North Carolina area to pop in and give some love to the Comfort Inn for being a recovery ally and supporting community-based organizations. You can find them through choicehotels.com. You can also check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash ncraw and become an ncraw patron for as little as a dollar a month um, to help support us in the growth and in the building of a recording studio slash community center. And for doing that, you can you you will as an NCRAW patron, you will receive exclusive content that only patrons have access to behind the scenes live streams behind the scenes recorded information all kinds of cool stuff so check out our patreon page and thank you for listening to the podcast good night